Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. Adam Spinella is in the building. We're going to talk all about the Final Four field being set. We have Miami and San Diego State who won today, Connecticut and Florida Atlantic that won yesterday. We have, I believe, a four seed, two five seeds, and a nine seed, which is one of the weirdest Final Four groups that I can remember. Three teams that are making the Final Four for the first time. That is all of San Diego State, Miami, and Florida Atlantic. This is an insane Final Four. We're going to talk about the four Elite Eight games we saw. We're going to talk about the roster constructions of these teams, how they went about building these teams. And then we're going to talk about the Dallas Mavericks at the end because the Dallas Mavericks are in the danger zone right now, folks, and they need to get out of it in a hurry. Adam, what's going on, man? Hey, Sam. I love basketball. Uh, I, I, don't know if, <laughs> I don't know about you, but like, what a fun weekend of, of hoops games here and, and to see – you know, so many games go wire to wire. Miami's furious comeback here today and an awesome game earlier between Creighton and San Diego State. Like, I'm just I'm really appreciative for the parody in college basketball because it makes for a really fun environment to kind of take in games. You believe that anybody has a chance to to beat whoever they're going up against. You believe that anyone can come back from a 10, 15, even 20 point deficit with the way the teams shoot the ball and pressure on defense, it's it's been such a fun tournament that even though brackets are busted and none of the major powers other than you know Connecticut making it all the way through to the Final Four, this has been an NCAA tournament that I will remember for a long period of time because I think it's been an enjoyable watch in so many different ways. I think it's the NCAA tournament that more than anything brought on the new paradigm of college basketball in a lot of different ways yeah. here. And the reason that I say that is pretty simple. You look at the way that these teams have been constructed across the board. You have a Connecticut team that has a couple of legit NBA draft prospects that filled it out with the transfer portal and went from there with San Diego State, you have an older team. You have a team that I think genuinely their average age is like 23 years old. And they filled that out with the transfer portal in many cases. With Miami, this is a team that made waves in the offseason for the way that they used NIL to get guys like Nigel Pack to come to Miami. Norchad O'Meara, another guy. Transfer portal went to Miami. And then finally... You have this Florida Atlantic team that, to me, embodies a lot of modern basketball principles more than anything else. And I think that this Final Four is a really good mix of modern basketball principles winning out over like older college basketball ideals, building around the big man, post-play, everything like that along with newer college basketball ideals that essentially are built around the idea of hitting the portal, going to you know heavily invest in NIL and everything. We're going to talk a little bit about all four of these teams and how they built them at some point. But we want to talk about the games first. And I think that the best way to start is that Miami comeback against Texas, where I think they were down – something like 12 points with 13 minutes left. They were down 10, I think, with eight minutes left, and then just went on a run. And this Miami team, once they started getting going downhill, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal basketball team. Yeah, and, and it was stops that fueled that, Sam. It was their ability to to really 
play in transition where their speed and their ability to attack the basket allowed them to get easy buckets and crawl their way back in. You know, Miami has not been a sensational defensive team throughout the entire season. They're a little bit smaller and undersized, but that's by design. That's how they want to play and space you out on offense. And they've got a, a big man in Norchad O'Meara who can bang with the bigger bodies down low because he has such a great motor and a strong frame, even though he's only about six foot seven, maybe six foot eight. But when they do defend, when they hit the glass really hard on the defensive side or they're shooting passing lanes, they're gambling for steals, they put so much pressure on their opponent because they're going to generate good looks on the offensive end in the half court. But if they're getting easy ones and they're winning that transition battle, they're a really dangerous, dangerous team. And that's where I think they flipped the script today over those final 10 or 12 minutes. They started to get stops. They got steals. They got out in transition. They hit ahead. And that allowed them to just kind of settle in a little bit more in the half court and not really worry about where the shots were going to come from as much as they did in the first half. I mean, Texas putting up what 45, 47, whatever they did in the first half inexcusable if you're Miami they settled in they defended and that was the key to their comeback yeah it got super aggressive this is a team that I think is much better when they play aggressive defensively they are capable of doing that throughout large swaths of the game and like to be honest I didn't even think they played like horribly defensively in the first half it's just that they have these little breakdowns that lead to easy shots more than anything else. It feels like, uh, and those can be problematic throughout the course of a game. You look at the way their roster is built. They have a small backcourt with Isaiah Wong. Who's just not like an awesome defender and Nigel pack. Who's six foot tall. And then you have a really good defensive wing in Jordan Miller. You have an incredibly athletic defensive wing in Wooga Poplar. And then you have a mobile big in Norchad O'Meer, who I think is actually pretty good at blitzing ball screens, hard hedging, being able to play flatter at the level, and then recovering back. The problem is they just don't have any rim protection because that's the thing that O'Meer doesn't really do at the high major level. Uh, He was a great rim protector at the Sun Belt level last year, was not a great rim protector this year for Miami. That's okay. He crushes the glass and he's super mobile and does a lot of different things. He's incredibly valuable player in college basketball. Maybe I think you can make a case ended up being the most valuable transfer uh, for any team this season, given the fact that they, he took Miami to the final four, right. As one of the best players on the team, certainly like the third or fourth best player on the team, along with Nigel pack, uh, Tristan Newton would probably have something to say about yes, that. Darion yeah. Trammell would probably have something to say about that, right? But nonetheless, you can work around Norchad O'Meara's weaknesses and uh, his his limitations maybe in terms of size. The thing that really struck me about Miami today, though, was just how Jordan Miller continues to just step up in these big moments I think Isaiah Wong was Miami's best player throughout the course of the full season. There's a reason he won ACC player of the year. There's a reason that he won uh, all of the honors that he won this season. I believe he may have even been an all American in some people's voting. I think that by the end of this season, Jordan Miller was probably Miami's best player. And I think he's emerged into becoming that And today's game was the finality of that. He goes seven for seven from the field, 13 for 13 from three. My man went 20 for 20 today. That's unbelievable. He dropped 17 or 27 points. He played great defense today. Like say whatever you want about how Miami struggled to get stops in the first half. That wasn't on him. He was phenomenally active on the defensive end today. I I thought he was absolutely terrific across the board. Uh, This is the guy that I think has helped himself more than anybody uh, throughout the NCAA tournament just to get his name out there more uh, in terms of being a potential pro and ending up as a potential NBA draft pick. Look, we'll talk about roster construction and, and within that conversation, I'm sure we'll have small anecdotes about culture and how that matters in this entire equation of what coaches are building, not just from a stylistic standpoint, but from a mental capability and and, and durability standpoint. I think the greatest part about Jordan Miller is that he knows who he is. 
This is not a guy who's going to stand out a ton from a draft perspective or even in a lot of regular season games because he's the guy that shows up the hardest when it's just the dirty work that needs to get done. And he'll do it. And he and Norchad Omir are both those kind of guys. Today he didn't miss a shot. And obviously that makes him stand out so much more from a stat sheet perspective. He's 27 points, got to the free throw line a ton, but he's always this active on defense. He's always this this determined to grab extra possessions and, and rebounds where he can. He's always very smart about how he moves the ball versus how he attacks and gets downhill on the offensive end of the floor. Yep. He's a really, really good role player. And until Miami was going to get a national stage and have those moments where role players can make or break your season and everybody got to see how rock solid he is day in and day out, of course he was going to be a little bit more of a sleeper. But he's been really good all season long. Mark Schindler uh, on the previous podcast told me he would have him in the 25 to 35 range. Ooh. Uh that's, that's aggressive, but I love it. Uh, I love Mark for coming with the takes. I said he was a two-way guy uh, on that podcast on Saturday. I guess that was Friday mm-hmm. uh, night in the United States. Do you think that Jordan Miller is like a very real NBA draft prospect? Yeah, I do. I, I do. I think that yeah. he's he's flirting with that top 60 for me right now. Uh, you know, there yeah. are smaller things and areas that he's got to continue to improve at, but the I think you said it earlier. Nobody has helped himself more this March than a guy like Jordan Miller. Yeah. My thing is the shooting. Like I I don't really love the shot. If I'm being completely honest, Uh, he's going to have to continue to improve uh, his confidence level as a shooter. It feels like he just isn't really willing to take them all the time, which in and of itself is uh, a statement on his overall willingness to shoot. Uh, Cause he is left open long enough to be Mm -hmm. able to take those shots. Uh, the other guy that stood out for me today was just Wooga Poplar. And this is, to me, you know, in that conversation with Mark, I also said that I think he is their best long-term prospect. Uh, he showed it today. I think he is a terrific athlete, a great defensive wing. He gets himself in there rebounding the basketball. Uh, just su- super, super athletic out in transition. A great running mate for guys like Nigel Pack and Isaiah Wong. I think that long-term, he's probably the best prospect on Miami, but uh, he-, he is – coming of age right now at a perfect time for the Hurricanes, I think. Yeah, and I love Norchad Amir. He's always been my guy just because I think his motor, his unwillingness to be denied from a, I'm just going to make a positive play to help my team. I don't care what it is. I'm going to find a way to do it. Uh, I'm going to bet on a guy like him to translate and carve out some sort of a pro career for himself. So I'm really high on him. This is a talented team, and they flew under the radar through a lot of the season because – there was that perception the ACC was down and, you know, they didn't have the strongest regular season. They dropped a couple games that they might you know, want to have back at this point. A lot of sophomores on this roster as opposed to those upperclassmen experienced guys that you know you can trust. But they're talented, they're decently deep, and they have an identity. They really space you out on the offensive end. And then Jim Laranag is a fantastic coach because nobody yeah. enables his players to take control and ownership of the situation like he does. He's never yeah. rattled. He's always consistent and believes in his guys. And there's nobody, you know, Jerome Tang had a, a fantastic season. And I think is built in a lot of that same way in terms of his mannerisms and belief in his team. But yeah. the way that, that Laranaga just never falters, only calls timeouts when it's time to make an adjustment. I absolutely love that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, on the other side of this comeback here was Texas. And look, this Texas team is incredibly talented uh, just in terms of like older guys that can really play, right? Uh, they're deep with a lot of dudes. I think there's a really strong case that they win this game if Dylan Disu is healthy. Uh, unfortunately, Disu did not play. And it came down to guys like Marcus Carr and Timmy Allen having to really be the dudes here. And they just couldn't get it done. And I think that, you know, again, this is a team built on the transfer portal, right? Uh, Chris Beard, when he was the coach of Texas, brought in all of Timmy Allen, Christian Bishop, Tyrese Hunter, Marcus Carr, Serge Barry Rice, and then recruited uh, Dylan Mitchell, right? Mm -hmm. So, and Arterio Morris, I guess. So, this is a team that is similarly built on the portal. And we should also mention like Jordan Miller is a second year transfer in the way that some of these Texas guys are second year transfers. Jordan Miller started at George Mason. So 
I think that what happened here ultimately, and it's a little bit disappointing for me to say this, is like, look, I've watched a lot of Rodney Terry teams uh, at Fresno State when I was in Los Angeles and then watched a decent amount of him at UTEP because I don't know if people really recognize that like he had Bryson Williams, who was, you know, an all Big 12 player last season on his teams there. He had Sule Boom on his teams there, a guy that was first team all Big East this year. Uh, had a couple of other guys that went up to be high major players as well. And man, it really just felt like Rodney Terry's teams often kind of fell apart offensively more often than you would like to see for what the talent level was. And I think that's kind of what happened today. It felt like Texas did not get the right guys, the ball in the right spots and didn't really queue up the right sets to be able to withstand that Miami pressure defense. And because of that, they ended up going through these super long droughts throughout the course of the season. Look, if they want to hire Rodney Terry, I don't really have a problem with it. Yeah. I'm just saying like, this is a bit indicative of his past teams is what I would say. Sure. And, and Texas for all the depth that they have, I don't think that there's ever been a clear alpha that's emerged for them on the offensive end throughout the year. Like Marcus Carr has done it before when he was at Minnesota and, and has been a, a takeover type of player in the past, but this team was much more predicated on just moving the ball, finding the right guy, not necessarily running a ton of intricate stuff, just believing that their depth and their overall athleticism was going to wear you down eventually. And they'd be able to create some easy buckets, but it's, it's an identity problem in some regard when things get tight and the game is on the line. Do you know where and who, excuse me, and who is going to create that offense for you down the stretch? And I don't think Texas really did tonight. Okay, some quick thoughts on the first game from today. I don't really even need to talk about this a lot because this game was hideous and it was hideous in just the way that San Diego State wanted it to be hideous. Uh, This is a game played at San Diego State's pace. I think they did a great job of doing exactly what they wanted to do to make Creighton's life harder across the board on offense. Uh, They really just completely shut down the paint in every way. They closed out onto shooters when they needed to. And you look at what Creighton did, they go two for 17 from three. And I think that because they started shooting poorly from three guys like Trey Alexander, Ryan Nemhard, Baylor Shireman, uh, that trio goes one for 12 from three today in total. I feel like they got a bit less confident taking threes when that's actually a big part of their game game is spacing the floor and being able to run sets with Greg McDermott queuing them up at the right time. And it it just felt like they got bogged into playing a San Diego state game. Like Creighton takes threes on 41.7% of their uh, shots this season in that game against San Diego state, they took threes on, it looks like, you know, 17 out of 55 shots, which is what, like under a third of their shots. So kudos to San Diego State. I think they did a really good job of bogging down what Creighton wanted to do. I just also really, uh, really feel like this is a missed opportunity for Creighton as much as anything uh, based on the fact that they got a little bit uncomfortable with what was going on. Yeah, I thought Trey Alexander had a really good tournament, and this was a a tough end for a guy like him uh, coming down the stretch. Uh, You know, really showed himself well. I think he's moved himself into a really positive territory in that regard, but completely pace-controlled by San Diego State. Brian Dutcher, similar to what we talked about with Jim Laranega, just really held a belief in his guys, that they would come back, they would find a way to make it their type of game, to make it ugly, to believe in shot-making down the stretch. And, you know, he said it in his post-game interview on court afterwards. He dialed up some sort of a play to get a shot with however many seconds were left. And it didn't work. 
And it just needed a guy like Jamel to get the ball in his hands and take matters into his hands for himself. And I think that's what goes underrated here in this area of March. And what I want to mention from kind of a a culture standpoint, like the the teams that win are certainly – they have good guard play. We've seen that consistently for a long period of time. Guards who can take over games and make shots help you win in March. But culture is not necessarily about what you run. Culture is about how you run it and how much you believe in what you're doing as a group. And I think that that showed through for San Diego State today. They're such an imposing defensive team they believe that they're going to get a stop against anybody, any type of player, no matter how versatile Creighton was, no matter how the pace may have favored them in the first six or eight minutes and been a little bit a little bit quick for what the Aztecs typically like. They settled in, they slowed it down, and they just trusted that they had enough players out there and able to make plays. It's not a system. It's not this or that. They just knew they could get it done. Yeah, I completely agree with all of this. And look, this San Diego State team, as I mentioned before, a very old team. This is a team that is more experienced than everyone else, really, in college basketball. Like, I'm just looking through uh, the Ken Palm numbers here. I mean, they have averaged three years of Division One experience, which is 21st uh, in the entire country. They play a ton of dudes. They're deep. They're talented. Uh, They have a guy in Matt Bradley who can go get you a bucket if he has to go get you a bucket. Uh, But today it was Lamont Butler, uh, who was the guy. And uh, to be honest, like I've kind of been sneaky interested in Butler for a little while now as a pro because he's such a good defender. I mean, he's one of the best point of attack defenders in all of college basketball this season. Uh, I imagine he'll be back uh, at San Diego State next season. He has a few things to improve offensively, but I just love how deep this team is. I love how talented uh, they are. I love the fact that they have an identity and, you know, they're going to be a really tough game for Florida Atlantic here. And maybe that's where we go next. Cause I thought that Florida Atlantic, Kansas state was maybe outside of Miami, Texas, one of the best games of the tournament so far. It was absolutely terrific. Just yeah. free flowing offense up and down great pace. Marquise Noel, just driving the show for Kansas state. And then on the other side, Florida Atlantic, keeping up with them trying to get early buckets, spacing the floor with four guards around Golden. Golden obviously playing an incredible game for Florida Atlantic. Uh, I-, I loved everything I saw from this game. Yeah, have to give a tip of the cap to Marquise Noel. I mean, we can't mention Kansas State and, and that thriller of a game, or the, really their last two games because Michigan State was a, an all-timer on Thursday night. Uh, Noel is a baller, and he proved that you know, even the smallest of guys out there in college basketball can really take over if they're skilled and determined enough. So can't say enough positive things about the season the Wildcats had and how much Noel had to do with that. Um, Florida Atlantic's fun, and they're really good. And I hesitate to call them a Cinderella because they've been doing this all year. They ran through an underratedly good conference in Conference USA. Yeah, They have been confident throughout in who they are and what they do this entire tournament going up against bigger, better teams going up. Yeah. They, they got a little bit of a, um, you know, an an easier path with Fairleigh Dickinson taking care of Purdue for them, but their confidence in tough situations has never wavered. And I think that speaks a lot to, as we talked about what Dusty May has built from a cultural standpoint. Yes. They play modern basketball. Yes. They play a ton of guards who can shoot the ball and an emerging big man in golden who has been, really good these last couple of games for the Owls. But they have ultimate belief and confidence that the numbers are going to bear out continually. A lot of times, if you don't make shots early in a game or you get yourself into a hole, you tend to to press a little bit. You tend to try to do things that aren't built as part of your identity and who you are. And even though Florida Atlantic has gotten down in some games, they face some really good defensive teams like Tennessee or teams that can you know, really pushed the pace like Kansas State did. They stayed true to who they were, and they continued to take the open, the right shots, and knock them down. And I think that speaks to the overall optimism that a guy like Dusty May has and what he brings to the coaching sidelines in there. He always looks at things glass half full. He always encourages his guys to make the next play and believes that they will. And that belief shows up in those big moments when you're trying to crawl from behind. If there's one overlap from these Miami and Florida Atlantic teams, 
It's not that they're guard oriented. It's that their coaches have ultimate belief that they're going to get the, the game in their favor when it matters the most. And for Florida Atlantic, okay. such a young roster, that's such a difficult thing to do. Like Dusty May is an unbelievable, unbelievable coach. Yeah. I'll say this, like the roster is, it looks young in terms of like on paper, but like, for instance, like John L. Davis and Elijah Martin have been there three years, right? Like they're sophomores, but they're three-year sophomores. Brian mm-hmm. Greenlee, I think is like a fourth-year sophomore starter's career, or fourth-year junior starter's career at Minnesota, right? Like Jalen Gaffney is a fourth-year guy who started his career at Connecticut. I think he might even be like 23 years old, right? Uh, Rosado, I believe, is a third-year guy, right? So th- these are all like third- and fourth-year players that are in their 20s. That are They just have a lot of potential eligibility left which is what's really interesting about Florida Atlantic moving forward now and why, you know, obviously Dusty May has been in the mix for quite a few coaching jobs here. I do wonder if he might be better off waiting until next year at this point now, rolling with who he has for this year, uh, coming forward, going on another run, and then seeing what's out there again. Uh, You know, maybe he stays at Florida Atlantic and builds something like Mark Few did. Who knows? Who's to say what Dusty May wants to do? Right. Uh, But yeah, I mean, everything about this Florida Atlantic team is super impressive. So they are efficient offensively. They get shots at the rim and from behind the three point line. They shoot well from behind the three point line. They don't turn the ball over despite playing in a league that like there are some high pressure teams like North Texas, UAB. Those teams get after you uh, in terms of the defensive side of the court. Uh, they rebound really well. They have a seven footer that can protect the rim. Like there's, it's just a really well-built roster. They play four around one. You can say that essentially the goal can be to, uh, I I guess, try and beat them by being big. Like I I would imagine that if they play Connecticut or Miami, uh, especially Connecticut, they'll just be way bigger than them across the backcourt and across the wings and it's going to be kind of hard for Florida Atlantic to keep up with that athleticism and length combination that is playing at the same pace that they are. But I, I don't know. I think for a lot of teams, it's really difficult to keep up with that. And Kansas State is even built to keep up with that on some level because they do have guys like Naquan Tom, or Naquan Tomlin that will uh, be able to defend in space at six foot ten. Keontae Johnson, Desi Sills, Marquise Noel, like these guys are happy to run the court and be ultra aggressive it's just you know when you run things that cleanly and you get things moving that crisply and you run the court the way that they do it's hard to beat them it's hard to stop them well and you said that they rebound so well for being a guard oriented team I think that's where you know playing bigger than your opponent you tend to bludgeon them on the glass that's where your comparative advantage comes in and Florida Atlantic has done a really good job of, of neutralizing some of that. I thought the game against Tennessee really showed how they can control tempo on both ends of the floor by just being a little bit more relentless on the glass and really tough. Uh, and that was the biggest adjustment that I feel like they made in that game. So, I mean, Florida Atlantic's legit, man. They're, they are yeah. they have a lot of real guards who can play, who can knock down shots. But it's it's how it all has come together with a group of shot makers who don't lose their confidence when they go through cold stretches and who play bigger and more physically than they're able to. This whole March, we've seen referees swallow their whistle. And the four teams that are left standing, I think, are the ones that kind of shrug that off and just play through it. Real physical brand of basketball and want no excuses well, let, let's talk about Connecticut now because Connecticut has been the most impressive team in the tournament. They've won every uh, game yeah. by at least 15 points. We talked about this last weekend when we did the first two rounds. We said Connecticut was the most impressive team at that point, and we're going to continue to say it. This is, to me, look, I've been on Connecticut all year. <laughs> I've been talking about them since before Thanksgiving that I think they're the best team in college basketball. They went through that lull where it was really tough, but this is the deepest, most talented team, in my opinion. They have a first-round pick in Jordan Hawkins. They have a future first-round pick in Donovan Klingon. They have another guy that's a terrific big man in Damas Nogo. They have another uh, draft prospect in some respect in Andre Jackson. They have all sorts of length and shooting around them with Naheem Aline, Tristan Newton, Alex Caraban, another potential future draft prospect for us to look at. Um 
Joey Calcaterra, baby. Like, to the level to which Connecticut, and this is what I said, I remember a couple of years ago, or not a couple of years ago, I remember back in April when all of these roster machinations were happening for Connecticut. They lost guys like Corey Floyd, Diggins. Uh, who else did they lose? They might have lost Gaffney, if I remember correctly, as well, at Florida Atlantic now. Um, in the Connecticut, they lost four guys. And the Connecticut fan base was like, the sky is falling. Danny Hurley is not the guy for this job. And then they go out and get Tristan Newton. And I'm just like, guys, this is like a home run. You guys need to chill out a little bit. And they still were upset that they lost those guys. And I was like, look, this is, you need to start thinking about this from an NBA centric perspective where if the Connecticut staff, you know, and I'm not saying that they ran these kids off. I don't know. But like if the Connecticut staff, did, staff didn't think that those kids were good enough to play cook cook as well was another one. Uh, if the Connecticut staff did not think that those kids were good enough to play that season, then the odds are that those open roster spots in today's transfer portal centric environment, those open roster spots, scholarship spots are going to be more valuable to you in the portal. So what did they do? They used the Tristan Newton one, and then they had three other scholarships. They got and they get Joey Calcaterra to be a terrific older shooter who can space the floor. They got and they get Naheem Aline, a physical point of attack defender who can space the floor. Uh, the fact that they just added these dudes. Also, I believe they added Hassan Diara was the third one as like a killer point of attack defender who can come in and annoy the shit out of guards for five minutes. That's the modern college basketball ecosystem. Getting a star and having like open roster spots available to fill it out with role players is more valuable than just having guys on the end of your bench that might not be good enough at the end of the day. Yep. And, and beyond that, Sam, I I think the transfer portal side of things is incredibly important, particularly with this Connecticut team, but lost in the fray of how well they game plan of how deep their offensive playbook is and just a beautiful mechanism to watch. They have had some of the most impressive skill development from last year to this year with their main guys that I can remember in college basketball. Andre Jackson's evolution to being more of a point guard and a handler and, and the improvements that he has made as a passer and a playmaker, absolutely huge. There was that one play right before halftime of the Connecticut game in the Elite Eight where he saw that there was a, uh, I think they were blitzing a ball screen, trying to throw it to Sonogo down low. The pass was inaccurate and Jackson kind of flies up from the corner tips it out to a shooter and they end up getting a three right before the half goes like his feel and his attention to detail has always been incredibly high, but to translate that to on ball reps, to knowing how to create in the pick and roll to to having an offensive system that gets him on the move more so that he's not sagged off of a ton when he gets the ball in his hands, brilliant work to see Jordan Hawkins go from, from being just a, a good, three-point shooter and solid mid-range guy to the best three-point shooter in college basketball this year, with perhaps the exception of Grady Dick, Hawkins has been unbelievable for them and has transformed into almost a lottery pick. Adama Sonogo even starting to hit pick and pop threes. He had five assists in the first half when they were blitzing ball screens because he showed that he can make the right decision and be very simple with the ball in his hands. They're really, really skilled. And while this UConn staff gets a ton of credit for the way that they've built this roster, for the way that they have envisioned this from top to bottom, offensive scheme, roster, whatever, they've made enough improvements internally to be able to put all of that to, to come to fruition. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the coaching staff. I think the scheme this year has been phenomenal Great. with Connecticut. Uh, the way that they defend, uh, they pressure at the point of attack, they use their length, they use their athleticism. They try and just push teams to be sped up the entire game. It feels like with their length and athleticism, it's really, really sharp. And then offensively, they went through that lull in the middle of the season in part because teams figured out, okay, we're going to put our worst defender on Andre Jackson. We're going to let him sag off and everything. And we're going to manage that. Right. And then we're going to really try and force the ball out of Tristan Newton's hands, or in some cases, like force Tristan Newton to beat us is like the main point guard here. We don't know if he can do that. 
And while they were adjusting to the way teams were playing them, it felt like they went through that lull. The adjustment, I I thought all of these adjustments were on display in this Gonzaga game, right? You saw this where, okay, we're going to let Drew Timmy guard Andre Jackson. I think Gonzaga's game plan, like, I'll be honest, like, I talked to their staff after the game. I said, like, hey, I thought your game plan was great yep. in this game. Yep. Like, I thought you guys had a great defensive game plan. Like, they had Drew Timmy guard Andre Jackson, send some doubles to Sonogo, make Sonogo beat them as a passer. That's what you want to do. Sonogo yep. just did it, right? Yep. Uh, the way you kind of adjusted to Timmy uh, guarding Andre Jackson was super smart. They just had Andre Jackson go set on balls yep. the whole time. Yeah. Uh, in the first part of the second half until Timmy got the fourth foul. Genius. Like, just super simple stuff. Not even like, it, it's not like rocket science necessarily, but it's super simple and super smart, right? Uh, UConn, to, or uh, Gonzaga, blitz ball screens. Super smart. Like, I think that's what you do. You try and force Connecticut's ball handlers to get uncomfortable because sometimes they can. Andre Jackson is not the best ball handler in the world. Tristan Newton can get a little bit loose from time to time. Early on, they struggled. They settled in by telling Adama to short roll instead of roll all the way into a post up. That's why you saw the five assists happen, right? Yeah. I thought Gonzaga's game plan was great. I just think this Connecticut team's an absolute buzzsaw, and it's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And the icing on the cake for them is that they're getting contributions from two freshmen and Alex Caravan and Donovan Klingon that are yeah. really able to be rotation mainstays. When they take Sonogo off the floor, they don't lose anything in, on their interior. They're they're really, really good. Really, really good. Yep, totally good. And by the way, you mentioned Jordan Hawkins might be a lottery pick. I have him there. Yeah. Uh, look, I had him in the top 15 before the tournament, so like, you know, not much of a jump for me, but, you know, I have him right there. I think he's a terrific shooter and a terrific player. Uh, okay, the last thing I want to talk about is just the way these rosters were built, right, and do a bit more of a deep dive into how this came to fruition. So Miami – Going to their roster, Miami has Isaiah Wong, who is just like a four-year guy there, uh, if I remember correctly, right? Like he's been there forever, and he was the guy that you built around. Nigel Pack, transfer this year, big hoopla about John Ruiz's life wallet company giving him $400,000 a year. Norchad O'Meara, we don't know how much Norchad got. I would imagine it's probably somewhat similar to what Nigel Pack got. Uh, transfer from Arkansas State, first-year transfer. Jordan Miller started his career at George Mason, second-year transfer, was able to play automatically, uh, fifth-year senior. Wuga Poplar was a recruit at Miami. Uh, you know, Bensley Joseph, recruit at Miami. So essentially what you look at here, three transfers in the starting lineup, Two of them in this firm NIL era. Uh, Miami did great. They evaluated well. They picked at the top of the heap, right? Like I would imagine that, you know, I had Nigel Pack and Norchad O'Meara probably his top 10 transfers last yeah. year. But they ran the scheme that would work for them around them. Uh, let's go to Connecticut now. Connecticut, they uh, recruit Adama Sonogo, Jordan Hawkins, Andre Jackson. That That is – their core coming into this year. Uh, when they talked about it last offseason, the idea was we have this core of three guys. We just need to build around them, and we think we can be successful and be a contender. So what do they do? They bring in Donovan Klingon as a recruit. Donovan Klingon, just really interesting story. Very, you know, seven foot two, kind of ballooned up, if I remember correctly, like mm-hmm. during covid and wasn't quite as highly thought of later in his career as he was potentially earlier in his career as a recruit. Connecticut staff stuck with it. Klingon apparently really bought in and like, you know, got his frame back in order, set himself up for success. That kid's going to be a first round pick at some point. Yeah. I don't think it'll be this year, but could be this year. Joey Calcaterra, Hassan Diara, Naheem Aline, all transfers this season, all like guys that came in to play a role off the bench, basically. Aline is a part-time starter. Tristan Newton, obviously, is the big transfer here. They bring him in. Again, another guy that I had as a top 10 transfer last season. Uh, You know, runs the point. 
struggles a little bit early on, but really settles in, becomes a terrific 37% three-point shooter, a little bit turnover prone, but a terrific passer, playmaker, etc. right? So four transfers around a core of dudes that you recruited. Then we go to San Diego State. Matt Bradley is a former transfer from Cal. Darion Trammell is a transfer this season from Seattle. Uh, I believe that Keisha Johnson and is Micah Parrish a transfer? Uh, yeah, he is. He went from yeah. Oakland last year to this year. Uh, Keisha uh, Johnson, I believe, has been there the whole time. So Jaden Ledee, multi-stop transfer, started at Ohio State, went to TCU, now at San Diego State. Uh, Nathan Mensa has been there for five years, if I remember correctly. Adam Seiko, I believe, has been there for five years. Uh, Agueka Rop, uh, I believe, has also been there for quite a bit of time. I don't know how many years necessarily with them. Um, but you're looking at another situation where Matt Bradley, Darion Trammell, Micah Parrish, they bring in three of their starters in the transfer portal. Uh, Jaden Ledee, fourth transfer that they bring in. Portal is super important here. But Lamont Butler, Keyshaw Johnson, Nathan Mensa, the core of their identity is defense. Yeah. Those are their three best defenders. You can build around that. And they chose to build around it with high-level scorers. Florida Atlantic is almost the outlier here in terms of yeah. like, you know, they just fucking evaluated really well yeah. on the recruiting uh, circuit. Like all these dudes basically are just guys that Dusty May knew were good outside of Golden, who started his career at Texas Tech. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, Nick Boyd was Florida Atlantic through and through. Brian Greenlee, I think, started his career at Minnesota, but he's been at Florida Atlantic for like three years now. I think he um, he didn't have to sit out. I thought he might have had to sit out as a transfer, but I'm looking now. Uh, Michael Forrest was, I think, Dusty May's first recruit. John L. Davis, recruit out of Gary, Indiana. Elijah yeah. Martin, I think, is from like Mississippi or something like that. Um, look, they, they filled it out in the portal. Like they went out and they got uh, Gaffney and, you know, obviously Golden transferred in. So they, they made smart bets in the portal, but Dusty May is just like <laughs> a ridiculous evaluator. This staff did a great job evaluating dudes that are just way under the radar. So they're the outlier here. The way that you win in college basketball right now is you get a core group of guys. And I think you can look across the country. This isn't just this team, mm -hmm. but you recruit a core group of guys that are high upside guys that you probably can't get in the portal. Like you can get Tristan Newton, who can be a top 10 transfer in the country for me, who can be your fourth or fifth best player on a great team, but you can't get the Jordan Hawkins. You can't get the Isaiah Wong in all likelihood. Um, you need the centerpieces first, and then you build around those guys with like third, fourth, and fifth best players. Yeah, and beyond that, I think coaches and staffs who evaluate for what they look for in, in players and in teams, right? San Diego State's shared characteristic, they all love to defend, and they all know that they're expected to defend. Florida Atlantic's shared characteristic with the – the exception of Golden, they all shoot the ball and they're all really good in that regard. So find out what your identity is going to be there. And don't worry about the star ratings with recruits and any of these guys. If you know and you evaluate well and believe he's going to be a stud in the exact type of player and person that you can build around, go out there and do it. Yep. Okay. Let's talk about the Dallas Mavericks. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, I made you watch the Maverick stuff today <laughs> before we started this show. Oh, why? I haven't watched the team's game today against Charlotte. I know they lost. I watched the first game against Charlotte. Um, This team is a mess, man. Yeah. Like, and look, like, I, I want to be very sensitive to the fact that, like, Luka Doncic was very open after the team's first loss against Charlotte, saying that, look, I have some things going on in my personal life right now. Yeah. It seems like he doesn't have quite that same verb or verve. I just said verb. Jesus Christ. Uh, the same verve that typically permeates his game. So that there is, I believe that there is something with Luca that we don't know about, that we are not entitled to know about. And I wish Luca the best. I also don't think this is a Kyrie Irving thing. 
I, I just want to like start there and, and be very clear about this. I guess you can maybe make the case that like the package of assets they had to give up for Kyrie made it harder for them to do the things that they have to do. But I don't think this is a Kyrie is not really meshing with Luca and it's not going well in terms of that backcourt. I don't think it's any of that. When you watch Dallas, what do you see here? Oh, I see a group of guys who who don't have a real defensive identity or trust that they're going to get stops. And, and that's evident when you look at the roster. But more than that, Sam, what I see are some challenges from a belief standpoint uh, that typically are caused by not knowing what your role in the rotation is going to be, by not knowing what you're going to, to be able to give on a night-to-night basis. And when coaches, coaching staffs are searching for answers, and we can go into a little bit later about why maybe Jason Kidd feels he needs to tinker with things and, and move guys in and out of the starting lineup or, or play guys one game and not play them the next. When you're searching for answers, as a coach, you want to continue to have that one line that you always go to of – you're a professional. It's your job to always be ready, no matter whether your number is called X, Y, or Z. But the rotations are changing so much on the fly. The minutes from a night-to-night basis for many of their role players are up and down, in and out of the lineup, DNPs to 25 minutes the next night. That preparation, particularly mental preparation, is really a difficult thing to do. And I think what we're seeing is – the, the effort and the intensity that's needed on a nightly basis waning because none of the players really knew what to expect, how dialed into the scouting report they need to be, which guys are going to end up going and, and guarding on a night-to-night basis. And as much as Jason Kidd wants to turn it around and say, we need more energy, we need more belief, we need more preparation and guys taking this on and, and having ownership over it, it's a very difficult thing for players to do when they don't know what to expect in terms of their role. And to me, this is, there are a lot of issues going on in Dallas, but I do have a little bit of sympathy towards the players who are thrown in so many different ways, just trying to see what sticks to the wall. It's going to be hard for anything to succeed in that type of environment. Yeah. So the Kyrie Luca combination so far in Dallas has played 260 minutes together. They're a plus five when they're on the court together, right? Kyrie without Luca on the court, they're a plus six and a half, right? Like they've been okay. It's when everything else is haywire is the problem. And I do think it starts on the defensive end over the last 15 games. They are 23rd in adjusted defensive or not adjusted defensive efficiency, just straight defensive efficiency. They are 23rd uh, over the course of the last 15 games. I don't know what their identity is. And the problem is that I don't think they have the personnel to actually create a defensive identity. Okay. We could try and go big. Like Jason Kidd sometimes talks about trying to go big with their lineups. Right. The problem is that when you go big, you're talking about going big with like, you know, Maxi Kleba and Christian Wood or, uh, you know, Christian Wood and Dwight Powell together or Maxi and Dwight Powell, something like that. And none of those guys are good rim protectors. Like you're going big without actual rim protection, which is then just like minimizing your ability to play small and like be able to switch and like be able to do a lot of different things. Right. And then on the other side of it, sometimes they'll try and go like smaller ball. The problem is then they're too small. I think like you try and play Jaden Hardy and Kyrie together. That's too small. Like you try and play Josh Green and Luca essentially at the three and the four. That frankly, like with the way Luca defends, it's too small. Like, I just really think that they don't have any answers defensively in any way. And like, look, th- this all comes back to roster construction and just the overarching idea of what made Dallas successful last season. Like, Dallas was really good, made the Western Conference Finals last season by being an awesome defensive team around Luka Doncic, having guys like Dorian Finney-Smith that were terrific, uh, having real, like, solid 
rim protection, like having like Maxi Kleba, who in the playoff run, for instance, could play the five and they could be super versatile and aggressive and they could space guys out while still having Maxi to be able to do stuff. And I don't think Maxi is quite 100% back yet from his injury. Maybe he is and like maybe he's just like a little bit slow right now. It, it feels like Maxi isn't quite at 100% of what Maxi is capable of bringing, which is a significant problem for them. But instead of doubling down on the idea of great defenders around Luca. What they did was they go out and acquire Christian Wood, who's not a defender. They can't defend at all. Terrible on that end. Then they trade Dorian Finney-Smith, who's like the heart and soul of their defense, for Kyrie. And like, I'm not opposed to that as like a forward-thinking move, potentially, if they're able to re-sign Kyrie and Kyrie is capable of keeping uh, everything together uh, in his case and keeping everything focused on the basketball court. But it just feels like they went entirely the opposite way of what worked for them last season. And I do not understand why Nico Harrison and company did that. It genuinely makes zero sense to me. And I honestly wonder if this is like, a pure disaster hire as a like president of basketball operations. Well, that's Sam. I think we knew when they made the trade for Kyrie Irving and they pulled the trigger on getting rid of a guy like Dorian Finney-Smith that their defense was going to take a hit and that in order to get the personnel back in the building that they needed to have a good defense, they'd need July to come around. They just need a summer of free agency and hope that there are going to be enough of those role players around who are going to want to come play with two star offensive guys, and they can rebuild that identity. We all knew it was going to take a step back as soon as they pulled the trigger on that deal. The disappointing part is that it has taken a mental toll on the roster in terms of their belief that there aren't other guys who are willing and trying to to step up. There aren't defensive schemes that are consistent to try to say, you know what, we're just going to go all in on trying to let this be how we how we construct a team and a roster and beat, beat everybody. I keeps going back to the consistency around who they have right now. That that's that's frustrating to watch, and why Dallas has been on on such a tough slide. And, and look, they they got blitzed by Charlotte on Friday, and came out and changed so many different things with their starting lineup and their roster, trying to fix some of those issues. And they got drilled in the first quarter, and were down huge to the Hornets again today. So this, this is as much about the belief that's going on in that locker room. I'm not going to touch the Luka Doncic situation. Don't know anything. Don't want to comment on that without knowing. But the role players and the guys here look very much like a group who's frustrated that they don't know what to expect. And look, th- this part of the schedule should not have been this big of a bear, no. let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, since February 28th, They've played the Pacers. That's a loss. Uh, they paid, played the 76ers. That was a win. Uh, they played the Suns, loss, beat the Jazz, then lost to the Pelicans and lost twice in a row to Memphis. Then it took overtime for them to beat the Spurs. They beat the Lakers uh, without LeBron. And if I remember correctly, that was like kind of a weird that uh, was like a weird Lakers lineup kind of lead kind of that like obviously didn't have LeBron, but no, they had AD, they had, they had AD and Russell. So no, I'm wrong about that. They just beat the Lakers by one. Um, and then they lose on the road to Memphis. They lose to golden state by two. Uh, and then they lose to Charlotte. And by the way, that game against golden state was a home game against golden state, a team in the warriors that has drastically struggled on the road this year, like has been an absolute mess on the road this year uh, in such a substantial way that it's hard to feel a lot of confidence with this team moving forward. They're going to play the Pacers on Monday night in what is, I believe the third, uh, third game in four nights kind of situation. And then they get on the road to play the 76ers in the heat. Uh, then they're on the road to play the Hawks. Then they're at home to play Sacramento. Like, This is a problem for Dallas because here's the thing. They are coming into today. They were tied with Oklahoma city for the 10th spot in the playoffs. They lost today to Charlotte, Oklahoma city plays Portland. And this is like a skeleton crew Portland that has already said they're going to have like Shaden sharp guard 
Shea Gilgis Alexander, which is like a, a choice for sure. Um, that's going to put them a game behind Oklahoma yeah. City in all likelihood. And then on top of it, Oklahoma City has the tiebreaker with them. So they're basically going to be two games back of that play in spot. And look, like it's a little bit more complicated that when you start getting into like multi team stuff, the tiebreaker doesn't matter as much anymore. And everything is so clumped in the West that multi team situations like are absolutely a real thing. Uh, and look, like maybe Oklahoma City does not beat Portland, right? Like they're currently losing to Portland, like they're down four. Who knows, right? It's just really hard. It's just really, really hard to see where this is going for Dallas right now. And that that's where I think like, um, that's why I wonder like, what is their plan? I, I've seen nothing in the past year from them in that front office that says to me, we have a great idea of what we want to be and what our identity around Luca is. Uh, it's just felt like they've gone out and acquired players as opposed to like, having a plan of attack in place first and then like going for it. They're just like, Oh, we can trade the 27th pick for Christian Wood. Okay. That seems like good value. Let's do that. It's not great value. Like Christian Wood is like, I, I said at the time that I thought Maxi Klebo was going to play ahead of Christian Wood and got uh, some real uh, pushback, let's say. And I was right. <laughs> like I think Maxi plays over Christian Wood. Right. Uh, then they go out and they acquire Kyrie because they think that, you know, when's the next time a superstar is going to come available? I don't know. Like it, it kind of changed the entire dynamic of your team. Maybe that's okay. Maybe you want to change the dynamic of your team, but maybe not. Like uh, maybe, maybe you need to come in with a plan, right? It, it, to me, when I watch Dallas right now, it feels like from a team building perspective, I do not know what their plan is with, with, Memphis, they want to get a bunch of really competitive dudes, have a great defense, have John Morant be the guy that runs the show on offense, and they want to build that great defense around him. With Oklahoma City, size, positional skill, uh, you know, length, high-level processing ability. With the Lakers now, they've gone away from being too small. They want to play bigger around LeBron and AD, have shooting, have some defensive ability, uh, be able to be like six foot five or taller with defenders who can shoot and two-way players around LeBron and Anthony Davis. Um, with Denver, right? Like built the perfect roster around Nikola Jokic because they all move super well without the ball. They all run in transition. You, you can go through every team essentially, right? And come up with what their plan is basically uh, if they're having success right now in some regard, Right. I don't know what Dallas's plan is from a team building perspective right now. And if I was a Dallas fan, that would very much concern me uh, if I was wanting this team to be successful. Yeah. I want to see what, what July brings and what adjustments they can make now that they have Kyrie and Luca in the building or ostensibly have Kyrie in the building. But I think the, the panic meter, I, I'm not a, an overreact to the regular season games kind of guy. But the, the panic meter is starting to heat up a little bit there in Dallas because it's it's about the process, how this has all been kind of handled. And it seems like, and, and this is just not how I like to operate from either a, a coach or an organizational standpoint, there's been a lot of deflection of blame upon the players for not executing things when I think the roster is not well thought out and the coaching has not been alleviating them with some of the challenges that the roster has created. Yeah, I mean, look uh... – Everyone wants to blame Jason Kidd and look like I don't think Jason Kidd's answers in press conferences typically alleviate any pressure on himself. Right. Yeah. Cause he, I don't even know if he's like standoffish. He just is very nondescript and like, will like shrug it off. It feels like kind of yeah. is like a non-important part of his job. Um, I don't know how much I blame Jason Kidd for this right now. Like, yeah, like you're right. Like he's not letting any of these guys get into rhythm. He's not playing uh, guys together for long enough stretches of time to like really get comfortable together. I'm with all that. Like I, I get that, that you're right. 
I just kind of think that like there's not he's trying to find answers to a solution that doesn't exist on this roster, and that's the problem. I'm going to throw something out there real quickly, just as a break glass in case of emergency. Like if I were looking for an injection of some sort of positivity in the lineup, this is where I'd go. It would be Theo Pinson. Like he has been just Mr. Mr. Mavericks and role player for such a long period of time. He played six minutes uh, uh, against the Lakers in that win. He hasn't played over 10 minutes since before the all-star break. He he's not the most skilled guy in the world, but he has been the best culture guy that they have sounds Dorian Finney-Smith. And I wonder if just having another athletic, like I'm going to go out there and try to inspire my teammates type of moment is kind of what Jason Kidd and the Mavericks need right now. I kind of love that idea. Like, look, if the thing is, if Theo Pinson is uh, saving your season, you probably have some bigger problems. Right. But I agree with you. Like, I think it's great. I think they should play Theo Pinson and try and be aggressive, I guess. It, it just, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm staggered when I watch this team because I just don't, I don't know how you can so substantially fuck up a roster with Luka Doncic. Uh, that, that's kind of what worries. Like, and that's why I said at the beginning here, like, I think there's a non-zero chance this Nico Harrison, like, choice is disaster for Dallas like this is a guy that was a Nike executive who you talk to people around the league like they will tell you like he's a smart basketball mind like people love him etc but like not not a guy that really uh, has a lot of experience doing this maybe and it's not the easiest job in the world team building is not the easiest job in the world Um, there are a lot of different factors that go into it and Yeah, I I have some pretty real concerns about the road that Dallas is headed on right now. Uh, Yeah, in in a substantial way, in a very substantial way. Yeah, yeah, it's not been not been pretty to watch. Okay, Uh, Spins, do you have anything you need to talk about here? We we went for an hour today. I'm pretty proud of us. Yeah, we we kept it concise, which is not always my forte. Uh, I'm just looking forward to the final four, man. Uh, four teams that yeah. I can see clearly have a path to to win the national championship this year because of how they can force others to play their style and how imposing they are. Connecticut is obviously the favorite, and I'm not going to do anything so. to bet against the Huskies, but I at least see and understand how Miami could give them trouble with their their constant belief in the way they spread you out and can keep up and play at that pace that Florida Atlantic can get hot and really be a team that just beats San Diego state, no matter what that San Diego state being the best defensive team remaining can really lock down everybody that they face and go win a national championship. Every team has a, has a, a real chance here. And I'm, I cannot wait for next Saturday and being able to watch those games. Do you, have you watched anything on TV recently? Anything exciting? Any, any, any movies? What, what's going no, on? No, but it is Succession Sunday here in the United States where that is, so uh, is. Se- season four is now out. So I am very much looking forward to, to watching the premiere of that. Couldn't be more excited for it. Uh, I watched the premiere of Yellow Jackets on Friday night. It was terrific. Uh, what, what a delightfully weird, beautiful show. Uh, it, it is the strangest thing on tv it is the closest thing to like twin peaks and lost that you will find i adore this show it is absurd and hilarious and i uh it's like other than succession my favorite show to premiere like in the last three or four years i think it's just so fun uh, succession obviously is exciting. I will be seeing John Wick tomorrow uh, before I leave to go over to the United States. I think I'm going to try and do like an 11 a.m. screening just so I can like be alone and scream at the screen uh, in the mall near my house. <laughs> That's going to be it. The, the hope is the hope is I am literally the only person in this theater uh, getting like a private viewing of John Wick for. Um, oh, man. But we shall see. Okay, Spins. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on uh, in your life. Yeah, Sam, thanks for having me. As always, pleasure to be here talking hoops. Find me on Twitter at TheBoxing1 underscore my YouTube, Adam Spinella, or the Substack, TheBoxing1.substack.com. Have a lot of video and written scouting reports coming out around now. Did Cam Whitmore, Scoot Henderson last week. 
Brandon Pajemski, uh, Leonard Miller, Gigi Jackson, and a bunch of others coming this week, maybe even a Jet Howard sneaking in there. So uh, a lot of a lot of big-time prospects coming our way and, and really just loving diving into this film and having finality for the draft cycle for at least the body of work that they're giving. But uh, I cannot wait until next Saturday, the final four, baby. Can't wait. It's the best. I am through 30 draft guide profiles now. It's great. I've written like 48,000 words on this thing. I feel super happy about where I'm at with it. I'm not going to be rushing at the end. I think you guys might actually have it like after the college uh, early entry cycle, like finalizes like that. That's my plan is you guys might even get like a month with it pre-draft given how far along with this thing I am. Uh, typically like I'm genuinely probably about halfway done with it, maybe 40% done with it at this point. So keep it locked here. Go to the athletic. I will have a mock draft on Tuesday. I will have transfer rankings coming up later this week at some point. I'm also working on something that uh, I don't really want to talk about too much because I still need to finalize some of the people I'm getting for it um, on the college coaching side. Uh yeah, I mean, it's that time of year. This thing is just bonkers. Uh, there's not really another way to do it. I'm going over to the United States on Tuesday, uh, so Monday in the United States, and I will be seeing draft prospects and talking to them and you know doing stories on them for The Athletic. That is the plan. So uh, really excited about that. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.